Amen. Thank you, Dan. So uh, if Pastor Scott is watching online, we did, re- we did not receive your email. He sent an email. He told uh, Jen that he sent an email to be read out this morning. And it's stuck in Iceland or somewhere, but it's not here on any of her emails. So uh, Pastor Scott says hello, <laughs> and we say hello back. Uh, it is, uh, what's it, 10.32? It is 9.32 in Uganda this evening. So that's, uh, anyway. Hey, Pastor Scott, good to see you. We'll look forward to you getting back. So, um, how many noticed the snow this week? You had snow, cold weather. Like, yeah, it's, it's cold. We don't normally get this cold, but it's been cold. Now, it wasn't too much, so it was dry. I actually took my, my, <laughs> my leaf blower and blew my car off. That worked really good. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes snow is deep, and it's frozen onto your car. This is a little video of a fellow at the end of the day who had to clear his car before he wanted to go home. Poor guy did all that work on the wrong car. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is tackling a very similar problem. It is the start of Jesus' ministry years. He ministers at about the age of 30 for three years. He is confronting the religious authorities. These religious authorities are people who have worked so hard at their duty before God, but they were working on the wrong car. Don't you feel sorry for that guy in the video? All that work on the wrong car? Sometimes life is like that. You work really hard on a project only to find out it was the wrong project. All that time and money and effort are wasted. And that's the situation that Jesus saw as he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 2. The people, these people were a very religious group of people attempting to follow God, but they spend a lot of time and effort on the wrong project. Jesus is in Galilee. There's the picture of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. It is in the north. There is Samaria in between, and then down in the south is Judea. He's in Galilee. That's sort of his home province, his home area. And it says he returned to Capernaum, and it says that was his home, his home in Capernaum. It appears at some point he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and uh, whether it's, uh, that, was, that was home for him. Now, Galilee is a hardworking rural community, dealing with agriculture, fishing, building for the Romans. The Romans had a lot of building sites going on, and Tiberias by the Sea of Galilee, and Sepphoris. Sepphoris was only five miles from Nazareth. 
Tectons would be doing the stonework. Jesus was trained as a tecton by his father Joseph. Most likely, Jesus worked at Sepphoris or Tiberias. They were within the vicinity. That's what he did as uh, what he was trained for. The children were taught to read and write at the synagogue. They were quite literate. They only had maybe two or three years of education, but they were taught by the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament, they were taught to read and to, to write. Most of the boys and girls, their textbook was the Torah, and they memorized large passages of Scripture. Biblically, these people were very literate. There was a strong connection to the temple in Jerusalem. Even though they were separated by a couple days' journey, they would make regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem at least three times a year on Passover, Pentecost, and Shavuot, uh, tabernacles around Thanksgiving time. The Gospel writer Mark gives us a very quick outline of Jesus' ministry. It's a relatively short book. He spends the first half of his book, eight chapters, on the three-year ministry of Jesus. And then he spends the last eight chapters, the last 50% of his book, is on the few weeks leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. So in chapter 2, we have the beginning of a conflict with the religious and political groups in Israel. Over the next two chapters, there are six conflicts with religion. The scribes and the Pharisees. So let me tell you a little bit about who, who are these people? What are all these groups in Israel? First is, I'm going to tell you the scribes. They were known as the teachers of the law. They are the students, the interpreters, and the teachers of the Old Testament scriptures. They were the lawyers. It was founded during the Babylonian captivity as the people were pulled out of Israel to Babylon and they they realized, what's our faith all about? We almost lost our scriptures a number of times. As you read through Kings, you'll notice a number of times they didn't even realize what their scriptures were, and they were found buried in the temple. So let's let it never happen again. And so they made sure they knew what their Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what the Tanakh and the Torah was all about. And then the scribes, began to look at them and what is our law? What is the 613 mitzvot? What are the rules? What are the laws that God has for us? And so these scribes had great power in Jewish society. They were often called upon to settle disputes because they were like the lawyers. They became bitter enemies of Jesus. Then there are three religious groups, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, the Essenes were about 200 years before Jesus is when they started. And they were um, kind of came out of some uh, break-off priesthood. They were about piety, celibacy, the absence of personal property or money, a belief in the community, and they, they stayed in communities like the Qumran community. They had a strict observance of the Sabbath, they numbered about 4,000 and mostly breakaway priests. The Essenes ritually immersed in water every morning in their mikvah. It's where our baptism actually comes out of. John the Baptist was probably an Essene. Then there was the group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees started about 100 years before Jesus. They were the champions and guardians of Israel's written law, the Torah, and the prophetic writings, so the first five books, the law, and all of the other writings, the Psalms and, and the, the prophets. 
But they also had, and here's where Pharisees are very important to, to understand, they had the oral law, the Mishnah. And the, the idea in the Mishnah was really the traditions. So Moses, he gave us the law. But at the same time, he passed on, this is what they say, they passed on oral traditions. And so these Pharisees had gathered all these oral traditions. So yes, there is the law, 613 commandments, mitzvot, but there is the hedge that is oral tradition. And there are 2,000 more rules, regulations. And if you actually look at the Mishnah today, it is a collection of books about that big. I remember seeing the Mishnah on the library shelves, and it's a lot. And then there are the interpretations of the Mishnah, and that is another set of books. And these are the Pharisees. They know all this stuff. They number about 6,000 uh, members. They became bitter and hateful enemies of Christ. Jesus denounced them for letting their traditions negate the power of God's word. And he warned his followers about their false righteousness. He called them hypocrites. Now, Nicodemus and Paul, the Apostle Paul, were Pharisees by birth and training. Then there's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came into prominence about the same time as the Pharisees. They were Jewish aristocrats, mostly out of the uh, priesthood. They held most of the seats in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was sort of the Supreme Court, had 71 members. Most of them were Sadducees. Some were Pharisees. They were the insiders of the priestly class, the upper class. And they accepted only the written law, the Torah, the first five books. That's it. They rejected all these oral traditions popular with the Pharisees. But unlike the Pharisees, they rejected the idea of the resurrection and the afterlife. You are only here on this earth. And if you're a Sadducee, if you're living good, then God is blessing you. And if you follow the, the Torah, you will be blessed. And, uh, and that's a, this is, it's this life, that's it. There's nothing beyond. That is why they were sad, you see. But they sided with the Pharisees to get rid of Jesus. The general population would be influenced by these three groups in one way or another throughout the, the areas. Now, there were political parties as well. There's the Herodians. The Herodians were a political party who favored rule by the family of Herod. Uh, though they were Jewish, they saw the rule of the Herods under Roman oversight as Israel's best chance for survival as a nation. They were therefore the law and order advocates of the day. They regarded Jesus as a revolutionary fanatic, and then on three occasions they joined the efforts of the Pharisees to silence him. There were the publicans. Now, the publicans were public officials, Jewish people, who were authorized by Rome to collect taxes from the Jewish people for the empire, and they were hated and despised by the Jews who considered them as terrible sinners. Jesus was severely criticized by the Pharisees for even eating with the publicans. Now, there was that well-known conversation that our young ones are learning about today of a publican named Zacchaeus. So even publicans became followers of Jesus. Lastly, there were the zealots. Now, these were intensely nationalistic sect. They were anti-Roman to the core. You would compare them to an underground freedom fighter group today. 
guerrilla warfare against Roman rule. They advocated that Israel should return to a theocratic form of government where God is in control and he just sets up a judge. They were in direct opposition to the tax-collecting publicans. Yet Jesus chose a zealot and a publican to be his disciples, Simon the Zealot and the publican Matthew Levi. So these are the groups. And we're talking specifically about the, the Pharisees and the scribes today. Now in our story today, we're going to find that four of a kind beats a full house. I looked it up. In five-card poker, you have a 1 in 700 chance to get a full house. That's two of one, three of the other. That's a full house. You have only a 1 in 4,000 chance of getting four of a kind. So four of a kind is more valuable hand than a full house. In our story in Mark 2, you're going to see how four of a kind beats a full house. First, four of a kind. Or first, full house, full house. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to him. It was a full house. Imagine the situation. Jesus is back at his Galilean headquarters. He's either in his own home or in the home of Peter and Andrew. Yet it was home to him. People heard, hey, Jesus is here. They stopped in. There are people on the floor, people in the doorway, people at the windows, passerbys. They just stopped in curiosity to find out what's going on. Now, I experienced a little bit of that a number of years ago when I was in España. España is in Colombia, way up in the mountains, a coffee region in the Andes. And I was there for a week. And we stayed with a, a lady on the edge of town in a small house, really. But people kept coming, especially kids. And they would be standing at the windows, because it's open windows with bars on it, and they're all standing looking at the gringos. There's gringos here. And so they would come, and they'd look in the doorway, especially when it was time to eat. We would be eating, and all these kids would be, and adults too, would be looking and standing in. That's just like what's happening in our story today. Only more so. The house was full. The courtyard was full. And there were even highly respected teachers of the law sitting there, the scribes. Luke says that there were Pharisees also. Now they're checking out this teacher, Jesus. He's getting really, really popular. Is he legitimate? You see, they would see themselves as we are guardians of our religion. Is Jesus legitimate or is he false prophet? Is he taking people off in the wrong direction? Do we support him or do we squash him like a bug? So that was a full house. Then there was four of a kind, four men carrying a paralyzed man. Some men came bringing to him, to Jesus, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Four men carrying a paralyzed friend on a homemade stretcher. Four men, four of a kind, desperately trying to help their friend. Now, they've heard about Jesus, and they believe he can heal their friend. But when they arrive, they can't even get near the house because of the crowd. So they get an idea. Let's go up on the roof. Now, a particular house that Jesus would be in would have an outside stairs, usually going up to a flat roof. If that didn't, maybe the house next door did, and they would just go up and come across onto the roof. 
And it wouldn't be hard to dig a hole in the roof. The roofs were usually just brush with mud over it. Luke says that they removed some tiles. However, they opened, made an opening in the roof, and then they lowered the man by his mat right down in front of Jesus. So four of a kind beat a full house. And Jesus recognized that these men had faith. But he said something unusual. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this man never asked for forgiveness of sin. He was looking for physical healing. So what was Jesus doing? Jesus responds to their faith. Now, it was more of a curious seeker type of faith than saving faith. Like they didn't say to themselves, Jesus is preaching the gospel, so let's take our paralyzed friend so he can get saved. They came to Jesus so he could heal their friend. They aren't overwhelmed with the lost condition of their friend. It's not their friend's sinfulness that they see as a problem. It's his suffering. That's often the level at which the Holy Spirit begins to work in people's lives, causing people to seek after the living God. Often God responds to pain and suffering to arouse people to seek Him. It's often when people are struggling, when they really say, you know, I think I need God, or will God help? You know, God is always at work in a world that's full of suffering. Just think of the suffering that people face. Marriage struggles, racism, poverty, illness, tragedy, injustice. We can bring everyone's need to Jesus, and we know that Jesus will always respond and probe even deeper into the issues of life. In the Jewish mindset of the day, there was a connection between sin and sickness. Physical abnormalities and sickness were thought to be a judgment of God for serious past sin. Even the disciples were indoctrinated with that idea. Remember when they were confronted with a man who was blind from birth, and the disciples asked Jesus, was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? That was the thinking of the day. If you're sick, you must have sinned. Now, the Old Testament tells us that there is a relationship between sin and disease and forgiveness and healing. Sickness, disease, and death are the consequences of the sinful condition of all humanity. Therefore, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion into the world of sin. So, Jesus has these teachers of the law in his audience. And he uses the opportunity to make a point. There's no evidence that this man's paralysis is caused by his sin. But Jesus uses the opportunity to point out his own mission. He has come to deal with sin. That is his mission. Healing was only the proof of his authority to do that. You see, we are all sinners, whether we realize it or not. Romans says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Now, Paul was talking to Jewish people. He was trying to get them to understand, yeah, the Gentiles are sinners, so are Jewish people. There is no one righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, separation from God. That is what it is. Death is separation from God. We are all sinners, whether we realize it or not. In Souk, I had a lady in my church who told me about her decision to follow Jesus. 
She came from a harsh home life growing up. Her husband was an alcoholic, and she felt generally that there was just no love in her life. She was at a church where she discovered that Jesus loved her, and she decided to accept Jesus into her life because he loved her. God loved her. However, she said, it was a few years later when she was reading her Bible that she suddenly discovered that she was a sinner. Jesus loved her and died for her sin. But she came to Jesus because he loved her. Sin wasn't even in the equation. Another young man who was in church, in our church, he, he came regularly and he came to me one time and he says, yeah, I just got a problem. I'm not a sinner. Doesn't matter what we said. We couldn't convince him that there was such a thing as sin. And that is a difficulty for many young people today. My age and older, we are a guilt generation. We understand sin, and we're sinners. Young people today don't see sin, but they do see shame. You can shame them so easily on Facebook or Twitter or uh, TikTok, whatever it is, you can make a young person feel shame. Jesus died for the shame as well. Sin is a little more difficult. I'm not a sinner, but... You talk shame, they understand that. Yes, we are all sinners on the highway to hell. But it says the gift of God is in eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did we receive forgiveness? Well, it is a gift of God. How was this gift accomplished? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If Jesus had not willingly endured unjust suffering, we would have remained lost in our sin. Instead, Jesus bore or carried our sins on the cross. He actually died in order to pay the penalty for our sinful actions. He became our substitute, dying the death we deserve. Now God, the one who judges justly, judged Jesus for our sin in that moment. He poured out his wrath on his own son to satisfy the payment for our sin. He endured suffering so we could die to sin. In that action, by God's grace and through our faith in Christ, we have been freed. Believers are free from the price of our own sin and from the power of sin to poison our choices. As Christians, we've been healed from the penalty and power of our sin by Christ's wounds, by his death in our place, by his suffering for our good. Our story continues. So we got, we got this situation. Verse 6 says, Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? So these religious authorities are stunned. What's this man saying? He's a teacher, but he's saying, like, that's blasphemy. It's a good thing we're here inspecting his teaching. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Skeptics. It's probably why he said what he said. He sees skepticism. The religious leaders heard Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness. Now, they didn't say anything out loud, but in their hearts, they were ridiculing Jesus. They've got a real theological problem with Jesus. 
Only God can ultimately forgive sin. And that is true. You can forgive someone who hurts you, but who's going to forgive all of your sin against others, against God? Who's ultimately going to forgive you? It can't be others. It's got to be God. God is the only one who can forgive sin. And that is repeatedly affirmed throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Only God can forgive sin. Now, there's no room in these teachers thinking of the possibility that God could take on human flesh, that Jesus could possibly be the incarnation of God. That is what Jesus was saying. So they conclude that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. And this charge follows Jesus all the way to the cross. To them, Jesus is a fake. He's taking the easy way out. Words are cheap. How can one verify whether or not forgiveness has taken place? You simply say, son, your sins are forgiven you. Then Jesus asks them a few questions. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Well, which is easier to say? Well, words of forgiveness are easier to say. But Jesus implies by his question that the physical miracle is actually the easier of the two. It's a far greater miracle for a man to be forgiven than for him, for him to walk again. To offer forgiveness, God needed to come among us and share our humanity. To offer forgiveness, God had to take on himself the whole weight of our guilt and rebellion. To offer forgiveness, God had to suffer and be forsaken in our stead. To offer forgiveness, God had to die on the cross for our sins. That's how difficult, how costly it was for the Almighty God to forgive sins. Then Jesus makes a statement about his authority. And then he proves it by healing the man. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Listen to his words. Look at the healing of this man. Can Jesus really forgive sins? Can he and will he eventually remove all the effects of sin? To make it even more personal, does he have the authority to forgive my sin? Will he, whether now or later, remove the effects of sin in my life and in this world? This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now understand, God can't just say, hey, you sinned. It's okay. Don't worry about it. God can't do that. Sin is a direct violation of all that God is. God cannot allow sin in his presence. Therefore, sin must be dealt with. The wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. Separation from God forever. And Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what the whole Old Testament is all about. Sacrifice. Lambs and bulls. Bringing your offerings. 
offering incense. It's all about sacrifice to cover our sins. But it, as the writer of Hebrews said, it had to be done every year, every day. You had to continually do it because once you killed that lamb, it was dead. Unless the payment is made, we are sinners and dead in our sin. But God, through his son Jesus, made that payment. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. His authority to forgive this man's sin is based on what he was going to do. Jesus would die for our sin, but the resurrection he would live forever. He is the eternal sacrifice. The whole Old Testament was preparing for this. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices. He did not have to offer himself again and again. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many, Hebrews chapter 9. So there is controversy in Galilee. Mark begins a series of stories of Jesus confronting the religion of trying to be good enough. Watch this video about religion and Jesus. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches, but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat, but it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. 
how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Forgiveness is God's grandest miracle. There's nothing in all the world we ought to seek more eagerly, both for ourselves and for others. If Jesus is God, and only God can forgive sins, then Jesus holds an exclusive power to forgive. This exclusive power to forgive continues to be the root of controversy in a pluralistic world. We're going to come into communion the Last Supper, Koinonia, Thanksgiving, the Eucharist, we have a number of names for it. But basically Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did. Forgiveness of sins. Don't forget the cross. It is the means of your forgiveness. It is the way. I'm going to go later on to Mark chapter 14 and read that story of the Last Supper. It was on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples laughed and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened one by one. They said to him, Surely, you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he given thanks, 
He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. We want to do the same thing this morning. We take bread, we take, uh, we take that cracker or the bread, reminding us of the body of Jesus Christ. And so we'll do the same thing. Let's thank God for it, and then we're going to distribute. So let's just pray first. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are one who forgives our sin, and it is because of the cross where your body hung, where your body was killed. This is my body broken for you. You died for us. You took our place of eternal separation from God. Thank you. And as we take this bread, help us to be ever mindful and thankful that you have forgiven us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the helpers if they would come up and get the bread and distribute it as the worship team plays. If you wish to participate, that's fine. If not, then you can just pass it by as the plate goes by.
Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, take it, this is my body. Let's remember him together. The next part of the Passover meal was the third cup. He says he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's thank him for that. Father, we thank you. The cup reminds us of your blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and you became that sacrifice. Not in the terrible death, but in the fact that you took our sin. You who knew no sin became sin for us. Thank you. And as we take this cup, help us to reaffirm our willingness to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. took the cup this blood is this cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many let's remember Christ's death for us
He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As the uh, helpers uh, take up the cups, they'll pick up the cups. We also have that opportunity for benevolent offering. You can also give to the benevolent offering at this point if you want to. But let's stand together as we sing the rest of